Good morning, y'all. Um, we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to be telling you a story that comes, that it spans 14 chapters in the Bible, okay? And so I'm not going to preach on it verse by verse. I'm not even going to read it verse by verse because, you know, we do need to get on with the rest of our day. And uh, we're not in one of those other countries where they have like five hour long services and they all like it. Um, if I did that today, you would not like it or me anymore. So we're going to look at a story um, that is directly tied into what we began to talk about last week at Easter, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, um, We talked about this last week. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus passed through death and came out the other side. Okay, Jesus um, passed. He, he, he is experiencing right now a bodily existence beyond death. Okay, that's what the resurrection was for him. And the question that we began to ask is, what then does that mean for us today? Like, what is Jesus rising from the dead back then and still being bodily raised today mean for us? I mean, certainly it's news that Jesus wins. It's certainly news that um, if you want to put your eggs in the basket of a winner, put your eggs in Jesus' basket because he has already won. Okay, um, but again, the question for us is, what does this like practically do for us? Other than give us sort of a thrill to know that for some of us, our hero won, um, what difference does it make in our lives? Um, and, and more specifically, if Jesus' resurrection means victory for him, and we talked about last week how his victory is our victory, we win when he wins, why then are our lives still so broken? You ever wonder that? Like, why do bad things happen to people? If Jesus is victorious, if he's risen from the dead and he's passed through death and taken it all on himself, if he's paid for sin, then why are we still paying for stuff, right? Why, why do bad things happen to good people today? I mean, this is a question that we have to answer for our own heart's sake. We've got to answer not just for our sake, but everybody else that you know right now is either asking that question or has asked that question. Um, I just watched the Superman versus Batman movie this week. So interesting that Lex Luthor's issue is, why do bad things happen to good people? Like, that's what set him off. That's what made him, you know, the most ruthless, evil villain of all, whatever that time span is supposed to be. Um, but I mean, like, this question just comes up all the time, everywhere. And we want to talk about that. And what I'm going to do today is I want to tell you a story from the Bible about someone who can help us understand the answer to that question, okay? I'm going to tell you this story and help us understand this, um, and this story will change the way you think about why bad things happen to good people, okay? And like I said, it covers 14 chapters of the Bible, so it's Genesis 37 through 50, okay? So that's the span of what we're going to be looking at, and what we're going to do is we're going to trace sort of the upturns and the downturns in the life of a man named Joseph, okay? Um, I was first introduced to the story about upturns and downturns from Donald Miller. He's got a program called Storyline that I think is really, really helpful. Um, and so uh, let me show you this, though. This is Joseph's resurrected life that we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to look at it in terms of the upturns and the downturns, okay? And we're just going to hit the highlights, 
but the upturns happen when good things happen to him. The downturns will chronicle when bad things happen to Joseph. And so because, again, because of brevity and periods of time, we can't hit every detail, so I'm going to skip over some of the details. If I happen to skip over one of the details that you like best because you're familiar with this story, sorry, you can just come, you can punch me afterwards and that'd be fine. Um, so let's start. Um, Joseph was a man who grew up in the family of Israel and he was 11th of 12 brothers. Okay, so 12 brothers, he was number 11 in line. And in his late teens, jo God gave Joseph two dreams, okay? So two dreams, both of which showed him that one day Joseph would rule over his 11 brothers, 10 of whom were older than he was, and his mom and dad. And so this was an incredible promise because it included that one day Joseph would be the leader of the family of God on earth, okay? That's a big deal. And so God had chosen Joseph to lead the one family on earth that God had chosen to bring all of his blessings to all of the world. So God is working in the world actively through this one family, training them so they can bless all the rest of the families in the earth, and Joseph is going to be in charge. Joseph is going to rule. And so this is a significant upturn, right? His dreams are a significant upturn in his life. Well, after he had these dreams, things actually then took a turn for the worse. Because Joseph was so excited about these dreams that he told his family about these dreams. He told his 11 brothers, 10 of whom were older than he was, 10 of whom were not real excited about younger brother Joey ruling over them. You can imagine, right, just some of the family dynamics that were going on there. Well, his brothers were actually so jealous that they became resentful and bitter. And they turn on Joseph, they capture him, and they sold him into slavery to a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of the king's guard in Egypt. So king is actually Pharaoh, right? You've heard of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so this is a significant downturn in Joseph's life, right? He's now a slave to the captain of the guard. He's in Egypt, and he's now away from home. He's away from family. And he's away from the promises that God gave him in these dreams. Well, in Joseph's time in slavery, God was with him. Okay, the Bible actually says that God prospered all of the work that Joseph did. So kind of like Midas with the golden touch, everything Joseph touched prospered. He succeeded because God was with him. And God actually blessed the captain of the guard, this guy's named Potiphar. Um, and Potiphar saw that Joseph was an exceptional person, obviously. But God, Potiphar also saw that the reason behind Joseph's success was his God. Okay, And so Potiphar gave Joseph more and more and more authority until Joseph was the overseer of all of Potiphar's affairs. And so Joseph lived to honor God even in the midst of this downturn in his life. Even while he was a slave, he honored God even in the rough times. And Potiphar exalted him. Okay, and so that's what happened next. 
that Joseph now rules the captain of the guard's house. He's now in charge of the man's house who is in charge of the whole army of Egypt, which was really the superpower uh, during that time. Well, so that's an upturn, but not quite as big an upturn because he's still far away. He's still a slave, technically, although he's got all this power. So it's not as high an upturn as his dreams are, but you know, see so the lines sort of show the, the variability of the upturn, the significance or the weight of the upturn, the downturn. Okay, so Potiphar, though, um, wasn't alone. Uh, Potiphar had a wife, and Potiphar's wife had a wandering eye. Um, Potiphar's wife didn't just think Joseph was great because he was successful. Potiphar's wife thought Joseph was great because he was good-looking. Potiphar's wife began to proposition Joseph. Um, Potiphar's wife began to accost Joseph to try to seduce him into having sex with her. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. This was happening repeatedly. She was consistently trying to get Joseph to go to bed with her. And there's a point where the story zooms in and you actually hear Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife. This is what he says to her. He says, your husband has trusted me with everything that he owns. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And Joseph's response, those words demonstrate that he both cares for his master Potiphar, but he is also living to honor his God. And so even in the midst of being a slave, even in the midst of him rising up under the authority and the, the privilege and the, the, the continued promotions of Potiphar, Joseph was living to honor God. And so what we see is that God is ultimately the, the, the reason behind Joseph's obedience. And so Potiphar's wife comes, propositions, Joseph responds and, and, and rebuffs her, tells her he's not interested, appeals to both her husband and to God. And what does Potiphar's wife do? She screams rape. There's one day in particular where she catches Joseph inside the house, grabs him by the cloak and says, lie with me! And Joseph runs. He just runs, and he literally runs out of his cloak. And so back then, your cloak comes off, you're wearing loins, you're wearing loincloth, so he runs out, and she looks one way, she looks another way, she sees this cloak, she knows she's in trouble, and she goes, oh, I know. Rape! He tried to rape me! He came after me! And this is Potiphar's wife. So what hope does Joseph have? None. He's falsely accused, and he was condemned, and Joseph was sentenced to the king's prison. Okay, the king's prison was the place where the king's prisoners were confined, right? That's genius. You can write that down. The king's prison was where the king's prisoners had to go. Well, these are the prisoners from the king's court, um, and this makes sense given that Potiphar was the captain of the king's guard. He was the captain of the guard. He was in charge of the whole army. So his prisoners would have been next to the king's prisoners. And so this is a pretty significant downturn, right? Worse than being a slave, now he's thrown into the king's prison. And so this downturn puts Joseph even lower 
than before. Because remember, what was Joseph doing? He was honoring God. He was doing what was right. And he was falsely accused and then condemned to prison. Some of you can identify with this, can't you? I mean, maybe you haven't been put into prison, but you might have been falsely accused in the workplace. Um, maybe you're in a relationship where a spouse doesn't trust you anymore um, and you feel like you've been falsely accused or falsely, there's been false conclusions that have been made about you because of things that you've done that have been misunderstood. Um, Joseph's story is extreme, and yet we can connect to it, can't we? Why do these bad things happen to people? Hold on to that question. Okay, hold on to that question because the story goes on. In the king's prison now, again, God was with Joseph. And the story says that God gave Joseph favor with the keeper of the prison. And so Joseph worked hard. He continued to honor God. And soon, sort of long story short, Joseph ends up ruling over the prison. The prison keeper put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners. And it says that everything, again, that Joseph did succeeded. So we see here that Joseph is now ruling the king's prison, which is an upturn in his life. It doesn't quite bring him. He's still in prison, right? So we're understanding that though things have turned up for him, they haven't turned significantly up. But Joseph is now ruling the prison. Um, and this is a demonstration that God was with him even in the worst circumstances. Okay, God was with Joseph in prison. Well, after some time in the king's prison, there was another officer that was sent to prison by the pharaoh, by the king of Egypt. And this officer was the cupbearer. He was actually the chief cupbearer. So not only did he bear the cup, back then there's a huge position, right? Because a person, I mean, this person made sure that the pharaoh's food and drink wasn't poisoned. And so the amount of trust that pharaoh would have had to have in this person uh, was significant, and he was the chief cupbearer. So I see him as sort of like the team leader of all the cupbearers. He makes sure that the cupbearers are all organized. He might not have been doing it um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but he gets sent to prison. Now, one night after the cupbearer gets sent to prison, um, he wakes up the next morning after this particular night, and he's troubled. And Joseph, because he was in charge of all of the prisoners, um, noticed that the cupbearer was troubled and said, hey, what's wrong? And the cupbearer told Joseph that he'd had this really awful and vexing and mysterious dream, and he had no idea what it was about. And Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream. He let him know that in three days' time, he would be restored to his position as the chief cupbearer. And this is great news. Great news, because that's exactly what happened. Three days later, the cupbearer was restored to his position, and as he left the prison, as he was walking out, Joseph says, Oh, hey, and, and hey, can, can you remember me? Don't, don't forget me. And so Joseph shouts this out to the cupbearer, and again, this is a, Significant upturn, right? It's, it's a little bit higher because he's interpreting the cupbearer's dream. 
he's now got a spark of hope that now the king's cupbearer, right, someone who is this close to the pharaoh himself, um, is now in his debt. So, so you have an upturn. Well, the problem is that the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Forgets him. Gets up there, doesn't give Joseph another thought. And I think to zoom in on this just a tiny bit, I mean, you have Joseph being faithful, Joseph blessing the cupbearer. He's looking forward to being rescued. But time goes on and nothing. Three months go by, not a word. Six months, nine months, a year. And Joseph is stuck in the same place, doing the same stuff. 18 months. I mean, at this point, obviously, Joseph knows that the cupbearer has forgotten him. But more than that, you wonder if Joseph was thinking, has God forgotten me? Any of you feel that way today? Has God forgotten about me? Does God know what I'm going through? I try to talk to him. It doesn't seem like he's listening. I've been praying about this situation and it doesn't seem to change. Some of you understand what it's like to go through this for two years. Some of you know what it's like to be in a situation for 10 years or longer. And we're tempted, aren't we? We're tempted to think that God has forgotten about us. And so Joseph is forgotten for two years. Two years. And I would think that this has got to be the worst downturn for Joseph up to this point. Because not only is he longer and longer in prison, but you just wonder how often Joseph remembered those dreams that he had so long ago. And not only is he geographically, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home and family and those promises coming true. But it's getting longer and longer and longer time. You know, you start to wonder, maybe I didn't, I don't know, maybe that dream wasn't, I don't know what the details were anymore. Yeah, I thought I remembered. I thought God made this promise to me. And I think Joseph's at a place where he feels like where he's at now is a completely different life than that life that he was living when he had those dreams. I think sometimes we feel that way. Things were so good a long time ago with God. I felt close to him. I felt like I was hearing him speak to me as I read the Bible or as I prayed, and yet now, just, just silence. that's where you are today, you are with Joseph in the forgotten years. Well, then something happened outside of the prison. So completely outside of Joseph and outside of his life, because that's kind of always how it is, right? Um, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, then, has this incredibly disturbing dream. And he gets all of his advisors to come and all of his magicians and his sort of his court viziers and no one could interpret it. 
and they're having this powwow, right, where they're trying to figure out how can we help the Pharaoh, how can we interpret this dream, and all of a sudden, like the cupbearer is bringing the, the Pharaoh a drink, and he hears him talking, and he's like, oh my goodness, oh no, I'm such an idiot, and the Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about, and he goes, oh Pharaoh, where Oh, there's good news for you. I'm such an idiot. Oh, there's a guy. Uh, do you remember two years ago when I went down to prison? Well, there's a guy down there, and, and he, I had this crazy dream, and I didn't understand it, but he interpreted it, and it happened exactly as he interpreted it. And, and Pharaoh, he's still down. I was supposed to remember him, and I didn't remember him, and now uh, he's still down there, he, but he can help. He can get, let's get him. Let's, let's get him. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph. He calls for Joseph, and, um, and Joseph then he gets the call, and, and he's told to clean himself up, which is kind of interesting, clean himself up and present himself to Pharaoh. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I was like, wow, wait, that's interesting, because when we think about us and our relationship with God, you know, God is like the Pharaoh of Pharaohs, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, Pharaoh of Pharaohs. Um, Joseph has to clean himself up to go up here before Pharaoh. And as I was thinking about this story, I thought, you know what? Our God is so amazing, like so much more amazing than any human leader because we would feel compelled to dress ourselves up for any human leader, right, that we were going to have to appear before. If you got a call from President Obama, no matter what, well, I don't know, some of you don't like him, some of you do, um, you would understand the rules of decorum, right, to appear before someone who's got a measure of glory that's been bestowed upon him by our country, right? He's the highest office in our land. You would get yourself ready. You'd clean yourself up. You'd want to make some kind of a decent impression on him. Even if you wanted to disagree with him, you'd make a good impression on him so that he would listen. Um, and yet with God, with God, it's so different. God does not require that we clean up our lives before we appear before him. Right? The one thing that God requires, um, and when I say requires, even in quotes, because God will take us any way we come, but the way to get into a relationship with God, the way to have God become on our side is for us not to dress ourselves up, not to put on our Sunday best, not to act better than we are, but to simply be honest. That's the requirement of God, that we come to him just as we are, as we are. Um, God will take us. Jesus even said, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So blessed are the people who are spiritual zeros. So if you suck spiritually, Jesus says you're blessed if you're willing to admit that. That's good news. And so Joseph has to clean himself up and present himself to Pharaoh. And I'm wondering, as I'm reading this story, as I'm thinking about it, as I'm processing what it would have been like to be Joseph at this point in time, forgotten for two years, this is his big chance, right? And I'm wondering if he thought, man, well, God certainly hasn't been calling me, but Pharaoh is. I just got a call from Pharaoh who wants to see me. I haven't heard from God in who knows how long. Maybe I should 
swing my allegiance over to Pharaoh. This is my one shot at getting out of this hell, of this prison. This is my one shot. Maybe I should devote myself to Pharaoh, to his gods. Maybe I ought to try to use this in a situation to try to manipulate Pharaoh, tell him what he needs to hear. I don't know, do anything just to keep me from him to go back to that prison. Do you feel like you might do this? I know I do. Um, when I am offered attention and appreciation and affirmation from people, almost doesn't matter who it is. I'll, be, I'll gravitate toward them. I'm an approval suck. Um, and there are times when I get so tired of waiting to be appreciated, so tired of waiting for someone to say something that's approving to me, um, someone to notice that I've done something well, that I will chase after um, anyone who can give me attention, who would value me and esteem me. Um, I see this happening sometimes in like dating relationships uh, where people are just, they're, they're not finding what they want in someone who's a Christian and then a non-Christian comes and begins to give them attention and begins to give them appreciation and begins to understand them. Um, and that approval, that affirmation will draw their hearts away and make Jesus not first in their life anymore maybe not even second or third. Um, and so, again, the question is, would Joseph compromise? He's got this power now to interpret these dreams, and will he use his own power to get himself out of this mess, or will he trust God? Like, that's the question. And the story goes, Joseph doesn't compromise at all. Joseph stands incredibly strong, and he makes it clear that God deserves all of the credit. Um, what he says to Pharaoh, when Pharaoh, you know, when he stands before Pharaoh and Pharaoh begins to tell him his dream, he says, look, Pharaoh, it's not me, but it's God who is the one who can make your dream clear. And so Joseph goes into a pagan world leader who has a whole pantheon of gods and says, look, Pharaoh, there is a God. He is the true and living God. He is the only God, and he will tell you what your dream means. And Joseph's decision in this moment, this decision to honor God in the midst of the pressure of the situation is actually the basis for what happens next. Okay, this shows up later because Pharaoh even says that one of the reasons that he chose Joseph was because in him, in Joseph, was the spirit of God. And so the fear that Joseph might have felt, the fear that often we feel when we're afraid to speak up and we're afraid to talk about our faith and we're afraid to let other people know where we stand um, with Jesus, um, is actually what is used, what, what, it's what Pharaoh uses to want to bless and honor Joseph. And when I, when I read that, I was like, man, like, what are we thinking? Like, why do we compromise? Like, why do we hide the, our, our, our belief about Jesus? Why do we hide this stuff? I mean, I know I'm afraid too, and I get into conversations, and I'm worried about what people are going to say and how they're going to respond. 
man, sometimes it's us just stepping into that fear with faith, actually trusting God into the midst of that fear that enables God to show up in ways that transform other people's whole lives. It was because Joseph didn't take credit for solving the worst situation in Pharaoh's dream that Pharaoh chose Joseph and trusted Joseph in the worst situation that Pharaoh would see. And so Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream is an even bigger upturn. It's an even bigger upturn. Pharaoh then sets him free from prison and actually exalted Joseph to the highest place in the land. And Joseph set out a plan to deal with the problems that Pharaoh's dream predicted would come true. Because Pharaoh had a dream, and it was that in seven years, this awful famine was going to hit, and there wasn't going to be food anywhere. Pharaoh was like, what are we going to do? And Joseph says, I got a plan. And so Pharaoh chose Joseph to lead the nation through the problems that were going to come. And so Joseph then is exalted. He's now kind of a pattern here, right? Sold into slavery, the captain of the guard, then he rules the captain's house. He ends up thrown into king's prison, then he ends up ruling the king's prison. Well, then he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh exalts him to second in the land. And even though he's second, functionally, he's actually running everything. Pharaoh is at this point just a figurehead ruler who can um, you know, get his way, but he's not actually in charge of anything anymore because Joseph's in charge. Friends, this is God's pattern. This is the way that God works. And this is the power of a resurrected life. This is the power of someone who is living by the power of God at work. Um, and when we live this way, when we live the way Joseph lives, God's response is to lift us up, is to give us more and more and more of his power. And so, does this mean that if you commit yourself right now to live the way Joseph lived, that you'll become the vice president of the United States? No. No, it doesn't. Um, you going to be part of the president's, next president's cabinet? Probably not. No, probably not. Um, but here's what this means. What this means is that God will give us growing influence with people. He will give us growing influence with people because you need to understand this is not the first time that Joseph made a difficult decision to honor God. Okay, He's been doing this for years and years and years. You have to see this. right? He's honoring God in Potiphar's house, right? The captain of the guard's house. Um, he, was honoring, he was honoring Potiphar, honoring him. He honored God with Potiphar's wife. Then he honored God in the prison. And he continued to honor God and give God credit even after the two years that he was forgotten. And so for years and years and years, Joseph had had a pattern of his life to being honoring God and to live by faith in God and by the power of God. Some of you are listening to me tell the story of Joseph, and you are ready for the first time in your life to commit the way Joseph did. You want to follow God. You want to honor God. You want to give your life to Jesus and say, all right, 
If this is the kind of life I'm in for, sign me up. I'm in. And if you're there, I applaud you. I applaud you. Um, but let me tell you, this is how, this is how it works. It starts, the, the influence that you get, the exaltation that you get, the power that you get is first and foremost for you and your life. Okay? God gives you power. He gives you strength. And he says, okay, now I want you to begin to work on yourself. Let's start with you. Um, let's start with your attitude. Because that's what happens. When you begin to realize that Jesus is risen from the dead, he is victorious, and that he is now the answer to life, that he will give you power, he will give you forgiveness and assurance and a peace that will be true of you and true in you no matter what circumstances you're going through, no matter if you're a slave, no matter if you're in prison, no matter if you've been forgotten, Jesus gives you this assurance and this power and this joy and this peace that will begin to change who you are, won't it? I mean, it changes your attitude, it changes your disposition, it changes your demeanor, and it begins to change the way that you treat other people. If God is with you, your life changes. And then you get lifted up, you get exalted, you begin to rule um, because you begin to influence other people around you. Other people see you and they're drawn to what you have. You seem to be happy in situations that I wouldn't be happy in. What's your secret? Um, things seem to be going well for you. Even if things don't always work out for you, things seem to be going well. And as you do that, when you, you seem to care about me, you seem to go out of your way to do nice things for me. I don't really understand why you do it, but I'm thankful that you do. And gosh, why are you like this? I just wonder what's going on with you. This begins to happen. And when this happens, um, as you do a good job of caring about other people, um, people will begin to want to follow you or follow some parts of what you have, and your influence grows. That's how it works. Some of you will actually become leaders. You'll influence other people with formal authority. And then others of you are just going to be the kind of people who unofficially lead others. Or people see you and they respect you, and you have this sort of influence over them, right? That's how life works. Now, Joseph gets to this place where, let's see here. Is he ruling yet? Yeah, I think he's ruling, yeah. So now Joseph's ruling Egypt, which is super exalted. What's Joseph's idea? Here's Joseph's idea on how to face the coming famine that's happening in seven years. Joseph's idea is that on top of all the other taxes that Pharaoh has currently levied, we're going to add another 20% tax on everything. So if one of the presidential candidates today were to say, look, I've got all the answers to our country's problems, I just need another 20% from you off the top. How are you going to feel about that? How do you think Joseph's tax plan went over in Egypt? You think everyone's ready to do this? Probably not. Oh, he had a dream, did he? 
Well, he can take his dream and stick it where the sun don't shine. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not giving any money. How do you collect on a 20% tax that's over on top of everything else that they're already being taxed? You can't do it unless you have an army. Bottom line, you can't do it without an army. You need to know the army. You need to know how the army runs. You need to work with the army. You need to know what the army can get away with, what they can't get away with. How is Joseph supposed to know how the army works? Where in the world is Joseph going to get the kind of experience or expertise to know how to use the army to be able to implement this 20% tax? Oh, wait a second. He already has this experience. Where do you get it? In the house of the captain of the guard. Joseph spent years in Potiphar's house, the captain of the king's guard, the guy who was in charge of the army. He actually understands. He was the grand steward of all that Potiphar had and did. Everything that Potiphar was, Joseph was there with him. Joseph knew the ins and outs of the army. Um, and he was in charge of the military in Egypt. And you, you think Pharaoh didn't know that? <laughs> you think Potiphar didn't show up and speak on Joseph's behalf? Well, there's another problem, though, that Joseph's tax plan uh, would have. In nations back then, political power was very unstable. You were just one burdensome tax away from a military coup that would overthrow the government. Right? A 20% tax. You know, how many people after hearing about this plan, would be ready to get rid of the dreamer and all of his dreams, right? And so political intrigue and conspiracies in the king's court were constant tension. Oh, if only Joseph had, experiencing, had, had experience working with the people on the inside of conspiracies and political intrigue in the king's court. Oh, wait. He did. He did. How did he have it? Well, he spent years in the king's prison. Do you see that? He spent years in the king's prison. The people who were close to the king committing crimes of espionage and conspiracy. You can't put them in prison with the riffraff because they'll mount an uprising. And Joseph just happened to be in charge of all the prisoners. He just happened to be in Charge. He happened to get to know them. He happened to be close enough to where he knew what their dreams were. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Do you see it? I mean, think about this. The downturns in Joseph's life, every one of the downturns in his life was absolutely essential for Joseph to be raised to lead others. Can you see that? The years that Joseph spent as a slave were years that God was teaching him about the army. The years that Joseph spent in prison were years that God was teaching him about political intrigue and the politicking games that went on in Pharaoh's court. Did Joseph know that? Probably not. Part of the reason we call them downturns is because we don't know what the heck is going on and we don't understand why these bad things are happening. But what we see here 
is that God will not waste any of our downturns. God will not waste any of our suffering. And what we see here as Joseph rises to ruling Egypt is that downturns prepare you to turn others up. Downturns prepare you to turn others up. God will use every one of your downturns to prepare you to influence others and lift them up. This is what Joseph himself said at the very end of his story. He said this is Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph saw it eventually. Don't know if he saw it in the midst, but certainly in the end, Joseph saw it. Joseph realized that every single day, every single month, every single year that he was convinced God must have forgotten him, God hadn't forgotten him. But God was working on him. He was strengthening him. He was giving him a faith that he would need to be able to save the known world at the time. Bad things happen to good people because God is preparing them to turn others up. How many people do you know who have gone through things you would never want to go through, but you've heard them talk about their faith in the midst of it, and your faith has grown? I mean, I can't count on my hands and feet I mean, maybe I can count. The, I mean, I don't, there's been a hundred times in the last 25 years of my life that I've listened to someone continually holding on to God in the midst of circumstances that are awful and unbearable, and yet they're trusting God. Even if they can't see what's around the corner, they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, they are still holding on. And my faith grows. My strength grows. I become more like Jesus, more like Joseph in these ways. That's what God is doing in your life when bad things happen. And so you want to ask yourself, what is it that God might be doing in my downturns to change me? And that's a question you want to answer. Write that down. How might God, what, I'm sorry, what might God be doing in my downturns to change me? Joseph became humble. Joseph had proven character and a faith that was tested and found true. And he learned through his obedience and his faithfulness to God. How could God use the downturns in your life to change you as a person? And then again, the next question, what might God be doing in your downturns to help you bless others? Because sometimes it could be as easy as saying, this is how much my life sucks. And I still love God in the middle of it. 
if you can do that, God will use you to turn others up. I promise. I promise you that. And chances are, well, actually, nine out of ten of you need to do this with someone else. Okay? Nine out of ten of you actually need to get another, like, guy or gal, bring them close and say, look, this is what's going on in my life, and I don't know what God's teaching me, and I need help. I need your help. Will you pray for me that, we, that I can understand what God is doing here? Because I don't get it, I don't understand it, and I'm frustrated. So nine out of ten of you need to do that. You need to actually reach out to someone else. Could be in your life group, could be just a friend, could be, um, yeah, I mean, just someone else in your life so that you're not alone in this search. Um, the other person, that 10 out of 10 person, they're already doing it. <laughs> they're already talking to somebody else and getting prayer and they're watching God work as they're in community growing together. Now, how do we know this for sure? How do we know that God will use all of your downturns to turn someone else up? I mean, what does Joseph have to do with us anyways? Well, the reason that we know this is because Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Joseph's life is a picture of Jesus. Joseph had these promises um, of of ruling. Well, Jesus had the same promises that he would one day be the savior of the world and the Messiah, and he would rule over the world. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused and condemned into prison. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was falsely accused and condemned not to prison, not to slavery, but on the cross, Jesus was condemned to death. Jesus lives a life that sort of takes Joseph's life up in its arms and makes it even greater because Jesus didn't just suffer for himself, but Jesus' suffering was for the sins of the world. It was for your sins and mine. It was for all the times that we have failed to honor God the way Joseph did. All the times that we weren't like Joseph, Jesus was, and that he died so that we could be forgiven. And for Jesus to be raised from the dead, for Jesus to be raised from the dead means that God can take the worst downturn in human history, where a perfect human being, a God-man, suffers hell for us, and then bring him through that suffering to eternal life. If God can take that downturn, the deepest downturn in all of human history, and turn it into something that can save the world, I guarantee you, and God guarantees you, Jesus himself guarantees you, that he will take all of your downturns, strengthen you, so you can be the kind of man or woman who can turn others up. And God guarantees it by the resurrection of Jesus. Because what God did for Jesus, he will do for anyone who follows him, for everyone who trusts in him. This is the significance of the resurrection and how 
it impacts our lives. Remind yourself of the story of Joseph. See how God turned his downturns into upturns. And God will take your life on a journey that will go through suffering and through hardship and through downturns. But he will lift you up in the midst of your suffering. And through you, others will be turned up. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you that when we believe in your resurrection from the dead, it means that we can have assurance that in all of our downturns, he will raise us up. Strengthen us. Give us this faith. Help us to believe. And for those who are here and they're not yet Christians, Jesus, warm their hearts and help them see that you have a plan to use them, that you have a plan for their life, a plan to bring about greatness and glory, that you want to use them to influence others. They can do that by your power and strength. Jesus, we thank you for this assurance. Help us this week to begin to see how you are at work in the midst of our downturns. We praise you and pray in your name. Amen.